All right, this morning we get to conclude the book of Joel. Give you a heads up, we're going to be returning to the book of Acts next week, jumping in with chapter 8. Today we get to look into some things that are, man, they are heavy duty. They are uh, weighty on the mind. They are serious things for us to consider, not only as believers, but all the people of the earth need to hear what is being said in Joel chapter 3. If you give me a moment, my notes need to come up. I think I got it. There we go. Joel chapter 3, we get to conclude this prophetic word about the great and terrible day of the Lord. A commentator uh, that Kyle mentioned uh, several times last week, also he'll be mentioned today, Garrett, he writes of this passage and related, related to the things that we covered from Peter one recent Sunday. Garrett writes, he says, judgment begins with the house of God. So we understood that. We talked through that, how God intends to refine his people and discipline his people, judge his people so that they will be what he intends them to be. Judgment begins with the house of God, but ultimately those of the faith are vindicated as judgment turns to vindication. And God shows himself to be the guardian of his own people. So Joel, in these little chapters right here, he is covering so much stuff. And he's already hinted at the fact that he will avenge his people. The people that came in and invaded the land, the people who have throughout Israel's history sought to oppress them and be a problem for them and enslave them. Joel has given us already this word in chapter 2. Hey, I'm going to deal with those things. This is what God says. I'm going to deal with those things. And now we get to the explicit details of dealing with those things. Vindication for the people of God. And I hope that as we walk through this, and there is terror upon terror for, for us to consider, there's also the fact that God is for us. He is for his people. Let's read Joel chapter 3. I'm going to read verses, all the verses of chapter 3. We're, we're covering them all today. Hear the word of the Lord. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? 
If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily, for you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle for the harvest, harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through. And in that day, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. All the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask your help, understanding your word, applying your word. Let us see you in a transformative way. Show us Christ, the Redeemer, who is to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, and our sanctification. God, help us. God, help us. Oh, we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. title of the sermon today is repayment repayment though joel speaks here to the end of the locust plague as you began the book locust plague was illustration of the invasion the invasion was a a prophetic word a prophetic event about what will come in the end when all people come under the judgment of god 
He's spoken to the end of the locust plague and spoken to the outcome of the invasion. And all these things are being set right after the invasion. Yet what he writes about here is still yet future. I was just telling Kyle beforehand, like, there are a lot of things I don't get from prophetic literature in the Bible. It is so difficult to discern what is this and what is this and what is this, you know? But I, I love the fact it's almost like a, a, a well-written and well-directed movie. I don't have all the answers when I get to the end, but I am seeking. I'm trying to figure out what exactly just happened. And that's what happens when you come to Joel. Many of these things are still yet future, but Joel in one line can speak of a plague and invasion and the end of all things. That's what's so difficult. Now, finally, here, he started to move his attention to clearly the day of the Lord, the end times exclusively, though there are some bits of restoration that he speaks of in terms of the captivity, following the captivity in Babylon. I'll give you this theme today. God vindicates his people and his name in the final judgment of warring nations. God vindicates his people and his name in the final judgment of warring nations. And I'll walk through steps that God takes in final judgment. Steps God takes in final judgment. There's four steps we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, the first step is found in verses 1 through 3. God sets the plans. God sets the plans. You look back in those verses and you, you're getting some commentary, prose from Joel. Commentary from Joel. And then verse 4 starts God speaking. And what we're getting right here is just a sort of a summary of what's happening, what's going on, what's about to happen. And the, the key promise in these verses 1 through 3 is that God will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. This means a full recovery and restoration of everything that has been lost. That it will be better than it was before. That it will be glorious is the idea. Now the refining process of God's people, that judgment of God's people in the household of God... At this point, this has come to a conclusion. And they're already experiencing that, that early and that late rain that we talked about from chapter 2. They're experiencing their vats overflowing with, with wine. The enemy's been driven out. Life is rightly ordered under the blessing of God. And this in and of itself is a foretaste of the greater restoration that will take place at the end when all of God's people are at rest with him. But what does this mean for the nation who has taken advantage of the people of God? What does this mean for those that have invaded them and picked them off and enslaved them and, uh, and oppressed them? There are numer numerous places where God gives a word about those who have come against his people. Here's just one. Deuteronomy 30, verse 7, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. All these curses will be on them. Now we're at this appointed time where the nations will arrive, as he says, at the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means the Lord 
judges. The valley of Jehoshaphat. And Joel here is not giving some geographical location, though many do identify this valley as the valley of Jezreel. Many expect the battle of Armageddon to take place at the valley of Jezreel. Here's what Revelation 16, 14, and 16 say. Demonic spirits will perform signs and they'll go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. As Joel speaks here, he uses the words in those days and at that time, and that may not be as a helpful of a statement as you might think. It's, it's not as though this is a sequence of events that we're methodically walking through. I would warn you again, when you look at passages like this, don't, don't become prey to trying to figure, in, figure everything out. Like, we can't chart this stuff. Even in Joel's mind, just like the details of the Spirit's outpouring, as we saw last week at Pentecost, those details are hazy to Joel. The overlap of Judah's return after captivity and the final restoration of, of God's people are not really clearly delineated for Joel. So Joel was only looking through shadows and types. He was looking through, if we could say it like this, uh, uh, kind of like when you make a sketch of something and you, you do it in pencil first and it's faint and it's, it's not detailed, it's not clear, but then you can follow up later and you fill it in with color, you fill it in with, with depth and you begin to see what the picture was intended to be from the beginning. So Joel is looking at that, that drawing from the start and trying to discern what exactly is happening as he speaks, but we are further along in the process than he is. We get more details about the substance. Okay, we have the shadow, we have the types, but now in Christ, we have the substance. As we have these details about the substance of Christ, we get to partake, participate in the life of the church you think Joel had it in mind when he said the Spirit is going to come at Pentecost, that this is what it would create? Who knows? All we know is that Peter tells us that that's what Joel said, even if Joel didn't understand it. Peter explains that prophecy. But in some sense, even as we are further along in the process, we haven't quite come to the end of that picture, end of that drawing. And so we still look forward with some questions just like Joel did. We look forward with Joel's prophecy still wondering, you know, what will this look like? How will this play out? What do these words mean exactly? Consider where we are right now. I'll remind you, as I have many times, that we live in a time of great tension along with the early church Garrett writes, we correctly view ourselves as having entered the eschatological age or the end times. We are in the age of the end times. The already and the not yet. 
We've seen fulfillment, but there is yet fulfillment to come. And understand this, church. We are the people. We are the people who have looked upon the hand of God in history and we have heeded the warnings. We're the ones who've heard the word through Joel and all the prophets and Jesus and the New Testament. We have heard the word and we've responded with faith and we've entered into Christ's kingdom. We're the ones who come under the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost who've been empowered as the church. We're the ones who are the subjects of Christian persecution, more refining, dark days overshadowed by serious evil. But we're the ones that carry the clear and bright message of the gospel. So we live in this already and this not yet. And we're not just sitting around waiting. We're the ones who proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're the ones who carry that message of the gospel to a world that is headed for utter disaster. And we plead with those who do not know God to turn from that evil, surrender to him while you can. And while we'd like to pinpoint the when, when's it going to happen, God? When are the end, when's the end going to actually get here? When, when is Christ going to return? We'd like to know some things. But you know, that's up to him. And our job is to seek the salvation of our neighbors, our friends, our family, and our enemies. God sets the plans. God sets the date. And why is it coming? Because because of the nation's treatment of his people. Something that God takes personally. The people of God have been scattered, cast the, the enemies have cast lots for them. They've traded them, sold them. Commentator writes, the fact that the price of these slaves only bought a night with a prostitute or a little wine shows how cheaply God's people were regarded. I don't know what it's going to look like in our land, in our day. But are you ready for that? Are you ready to be the subject of hatred to that degree? Devalued to that degree? Oppressed and pushed out to that degree? The comfort is... God will vindicate his people. So the second step, he warns of repayment. God warns of repayment, verses 4 through 8. He mentions a couple of nations here, Tyre and Sidon, the regions of Philistia. And it seems like, man, they haven't been mentioned yet. What do they have to do with anything? He later talks about, as we read, Egypt and Edom. So we got a little more um, to work with there. All of these people are people that took advantage of God's people when they were weak. 
Egypt enslaved them. Edom, did you know when they were being carried off to captivity? Y'all remember, uh, those of you who heard me preach through Obadiah, some of you are like, Obadiah, is that in the Bible? That a guy drive by the church and he saw Obadiah on the sign and he came into the door. He's like, man, I'm just so happy that there's a church that knows that Obadiah is in the Bible and they're preaching it. Like, well, that's us. Obadiah is a prophetic word about Edom. That's Esau's people. And what they were doing, they were hiding in rocks. And as the people were carried off to captivity, they would attack the people of God and take what they had. So it seems like Joel is making a list of all these people. God is taking note. He is, he's got a tab running on the nations of the earth that do evil to the people of God. And he will not forget these things. God says to these nations, are you paying me back for something? And the idea is that they're operating with this assumption that God has done something wrong and there is some way that they feel justified in getting back at Israel. And so he gives them notice right here in verses 4 through 8. You know, sometimes you get that notice that a bill is due in the mail. That's what God is doing right here. Hey, I'm giving you a heads up. This is coming. I'm about to explain how it happens, but you need to know that it's coming. But they look at God as though they need to be judging him. That he needs to make something right with them. And this is how unbelief works. Notice how the nations of the earth and the people that surround us who are uh, mired in unbelief. This is how unbelief works. It ignores God's patience and rejects God's merciful compassion. And then it envies those to whom God gives his merciful compassion. Until this uh, event, Israel's enemies, our enemies, they can't get to God. That person, this is, this is why it's, it's, a, it's a refreshing thing to think about the fact that while we are the subjects of hatred in the world, and we will increasingly be Christian, we will be these people. Jesus says, they hate you because they hate me. So as much as, you can, as much as you can stand this, let me just tell you, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. I know when you bow up and you get all red in the face like I do, I'm the worst. And I'm feeling that pressure. I got to remember, hey, their hatred is ultimately toward God. But that's how it happens. They can't get to God, so they get to you. They make the effort to subjugate God's people, to shut them up, to persecute them, to silence every mention of God and then call it a victory. As I heard this week from uh, speaker, Pastor Jonathan Worsley, what they don't realize is that they will always be haunted by the threat of God. Haunted. Even if we were to be completely shut up Christians, they will be haunted by, as Pastor Worsley says, the ghost of God. God says to them, no, you've got it wrong. I will be the one repaying you 
for the way that you treated my people. I will return your payment on your own head. Twice he says this in accordance with the covenant's promise. He said this generations and generations ago. The people of God's covenant have been sold and taken far away from home. And God's words to these enemies, the exact same thing is going to happen to you. And there will be no end to this kind of suffering. Of this warning, Stuart writes, God will give them a taste of their own medicine. God warns of repayment. Now, don't miss the fact, as we covered in the first point, and now we kind of get it again, don't miss the fact that God considers any attack on his people to be an attack against him. What did he say to Saul on the road to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me. By the way, when we go back to Acts, that's right where we're going. The beginning of Saul's persecution campaign. God has so identified with us through the blood of Jesus that he takes offense, attack against his people personally. It adds even more weight to the truth that we are the body of Christ. So consider this, Christian, it ought to comfort you to know that all the evil leveled against you, leveled against the church throughout history, the people of God throughout history for your faith that will not be forgotten by God. You know, every child wants to know that daddy's got their back. that dad's going to make it right, that we're going to receive his care perfectly, passionately even. And it ought to minister to your soul to know that vengeance belongs to the Lord, that we will be vindicated in the end. Now a quick caution, a quick caution. If you who've also been, as Paul says, remember what you once were. If you, who've also been an enemy of God, if you let your anger take over now, if you take it personally, if you respond in that anger, you'll think that it's okay to hate your enemies. And you'll be tempted to think that vengeance is yours. And Man, I'm going to execute vengeance and justice right now. That is not your job. It is not your job. You know what your job is? Forgiveness and grace. Just as you have been forgiven by God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. His job is vengeance. His job is justice. His job is the perfect execution of righteous judgment. Oh, we are fools to rob God of his job. God warns of repayment. Thirdly, God invites any challenge. God invites any challenge, verses 9 through 12. These verses we see repeated commands to prepare for war. These are commands to the nations. Hey, get, get your stuff together, your people together, warriors together, weapons together. Come on. 
Come on, a challenge me. God is saying. And several more invitations to actually stand before God here in these verses. And it really echoes verse 4. It's the invitation to challenge God on the thing that, that they think they need to make right. Oh, let me get at this God. So they're waiting on it. They're anticipating it because they think they're the ones that are going to execute that judgment. They're the ones that are going to pay him back for his supposed wrongs. And as the text indicates very clearly, God awaits their arrival. And they're gladly sending their RSVP. Oh, I'm there. Now notice here that this corrects the false idea that the nations are just ignorant people and they're just victims and circumstances or victims of providence and we ought to just be like, just pity them. No, that's, that's not the idea of the text. You understand that apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you too were an enemy of God. You hated God. And I know you can't fathom that. That's because you can't come to grips with the fact that you are completely uh, affected and contaminated by sin. You can't even be honest with your own thoughts about God. And as we look back, we think, oh man, I was so self-deceived. I hated God but I thought I loved him. It corrects the idea that these people are just ignorant victims. No, in the end, get this, the raging, rebellious Psalm 2 kind of nations. Why do the heathen nations rage? In the end, those rebellious nations full of people who chose to worship the creation rather than the creator, they'll be glad to stand before God and take up their own case. You can bet they're angry. You can bet they're angry. We've already seen in Joel how they've been pawns in God's disciplining of his own people for the good of those people. Now they are standing opposite of God as his enemies, objects of his wrath. And one thing we see, they can't win. They can't win. These soldiers are invited to battle against God in a battle, as Garrett reminds us, a battle they have no hope of winning. It is the great deception of the enemy. The father of all lies, even lies to himself even deceives himself. That haunted feeling that unbelievers feel is not one that they're willing to listen to. Rather, they only harden themselves all the more against God, believing that somehow there's a way out of all this or all this majestic revelation of Bible and all the course of history which testifies to its truth they just have to believe that all this is just, it's just myth, it's fairy tale, it doesn't make any sense. Self-deception. Maybe if I just fight this haunting, maybe if I just disbelieve the Bible, disbelieve the gospel, maybe it'll all go away. But nobody treats the Bible or the gospel that way. In the end, they take up their case against it. 
When they get this invitation, they're ready in their own delusion to try to take God down. Foolish. Can't win. Can't escape either. Can't escape. It says there in verse 10, even the weak are invited to the challenge. No one is left out. No one's dodging the draft here. They've been invited to turn their farming equipment into weapons against God as they mobilize for war. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now you may be familiar with what Isaiah and Micah say, almost the very same thing backwards. Beat your swords into plowshares. Beat your spears into pruning hooks. But that's not likely the original saying. And Joel uses the original saying as a call to war, a reflection of the warring nations amid the brokenness of the world. And after all the wars of the world are done, those who walk in unbelief will take up whatever they can against the one true God. And only those who've entered into the rest of the Savior, Jesus Christ, those who've recognized that they must surrender to God, only those will turn their weapons of war into equipments for harvest. That's what we are. The disciple-making entity. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready. Get your harvesting equipment, Christian. We have the rest of Christ. We have the hope of eternity. And now we get to go into the world and reap the harvest of souls that God has laid before us. Verse 12 concludes with the picture of God as residing judge in this event. He already secured the victory at the sacrifice of the son, and now he comes to finalize the verdict as judge. This does not mean that God is sitting back in some state of relaxation, but it does communicate his sovereign control of the situation so that the method of judgment he chooses in carrying out his word against them will be whatever he wants it to be. You remember, it's a sword that comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus in the end. What he says happens. Fourthly, finally, because I don't want to preach as long as Cal did last week. <laughs> Fourth step, God settles accounts. These all be very quick here. God settles accounts. This comes from 13 to 21. He settles accounts. First off, he settles accounts with Unbelievers. Now, I want to I go back to the repayment idea. Maybe you can get in your head this idea of being indebted because of sin. That's what's going on here. There's accounts that God is going to settle in the end. He settles first with unbelievers. And listen closely here. If you don't take away anything else, get verse 13 because it's, it's, it's painful. It is painful to consider the truth. God taunts his enemies in verse 13. 
put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Now, I just talked about going into the world, harvesting souls. Yay, make disciples. That's our mission. Now God is saying, hey, I'm about to take them all down. Garrett says of this verse, listen, it is striking that Joel would use an abundant harvest of grapes to symbolize the sin and judgment of the nations. Since he lamented the locust destruction of the vineyards of Israel, Joel now turned the idea of the return of an abundant harvest in a surprising new direction. It was the harvest of God's judgment of his enemies. Verse 14 continues the idea. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The valley of decision. Now, you might get the idea reading that, that this will still provide an opportunity for people to decide to follow Jesus at this point. But that's not the case. The valley of decision is better translated the valley of verdict. You want to hear how it reads? This is, I believe, Garrett's translation. Mobs of people, mobs of people in the valley of verdict. The mobs that gather against the Lord will no longer be able to decide. The decision has been made and the verdict will come from the mouth of the Lord. The verdict. Multitudes, multitudes, mobs of people, mobs of people. Do y'all get this picture? Bodies upon bodies upon bodies. This will be a gruesome day. Unfortunately, we suffer from the desensitization of our movies and, and all of the gore so that we treat this prophecy as if it were just a movie scene to watch. Anyway, those movies are trash. Like they're trash in the grand scheme of things. They're, they're forgotten already. And none of them comes close to capturing this, a gut-wrenching word from God about what will actually happen when he rains down justice upon those who reject him. This event will never be forgotten. You know how it says the, the sun and the moon and the stars will be darkened. You look back in the previous chapter, verse 31, you know why the moon turns to blood? You want to go to Revelation. You know why Jesus' clothes are soaked in blood? It's not his own blood. The whole picture is that this will be such a bloodbath that even the moon will be red. We can't fully comprehend that. Oh, my goodness. Bloodshed will reach to the things suspended in space. It will fill the valley. As he says there, vats will be overflowing, not with wine, but with what it pictures, blood. And it is the word of the Lord that will do this, verse 16. 
He roars from Zion, the victorious king. I wish we could just kind of sit in that a little bit. I would encourage you to not miss the opportunity to draw near to God by reading these verses and understanding his wrath against sin. In your time, I have not forgotten about our tentative, very loose plans to have a night of lamentation. A night of lamentation. Can we lament? Can we lament that this this is the future for so many? He settles accounts with unbelievers. And here's the fact of the matter. The offense against God is infinite. And that means a night or a week or a year or 10,000 years in hell will not be sufficient to pay for your offense against God. It will be everlasting torment. It will be suffering forever. He settles accounts. And you will always be indebted to God because of your sin. Always. But he settles accounts with believers. This is where I'm going to have to run very fast. 16, the end of 16. God's people have been bystanders throughout this this book, really, in chapter 3. They've been bystanders in chapter 3 up to this point. And so we could say, you know, this is an A and B conversation. God and the nations. And up to this point, the people of God are happy to not see their way into it. That makes sense. That is until now. And I hope the words at the end of verse 16 give you that that weightless feeling of being swept up into the arms of God. That the the thought of this, this wonderful promise executed would comfort you. It would make you feel secure, remove all the, the seeds of doubt. It would nourish your soul. Listen, the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And he washes us with the promises that he is our God. Look at the verses. Who dwells with us, who makes us holy, who keeps us forever safe. He tells us what it will be like for those who believe. An abundance of sweet wine, flowing milk, streams of water from the fountain in the house of the Lord. And Jesus is the one through whom all these things come to us. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The valley of Shittim or valley of Acacias also speaks to the paradise awaiting God's people. So with the enemies of God repaid and being permanently dealt with, permanently dealt with, the promised land belongs to the believers forever. New Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, as Revelation explains to us, is ours and will be ours forever. How is this the future for 
God's people. How is this our glorious future? Who, verse 19, it says, these people are innocent. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, I'm not innocent. Man, I feel the guilt of my sin, and you all can, can recognize you look back and the shame you have over the things that you have done. We acknowledge that we're sinners, and yet God in these verses said, you are innocent. How is that? Did you know, as the commentators say here, God can and will avenge blood for which there is no pardon. Only eternal damnation, Garrett reminds us. He says, or God can forgive guilt for which the eternal son died. Folks, we are called innocent because we've been redeemed by the substitute sacrifice of Jesus. You stand guiltless before God because he is your guilt on that cross. He is your shame on that cross. So you're wondering, how is this account settled? Well, God has welcomed you in and said, not only are you guilt-free and sin-free now in my court, but you are as righteous as my own son by your faith. So all the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us in your account and all the sin that we accrued, all that debt that was ours has been executed upon Jesus at the cross. Ah, oh, we're done. I just don't want to quit, honestly. It's so good, but it is so terrifying. The response today is repentance. If you know today that you will not be with Jesus when your life is over, you are the object of wrath that will be present on the day of slaughter. But you can escape that through the blood of Jesus today. Believe on him. Have salvation. Know God. And enjoy him. Let's pray and respond. I'll be available. Father, we love you. Oh, God, it's so good to have this fellowship with you and with your saints Father, we pray that as your word has gone forth, that we would be diligent to meditate upon it, to fill our hearts and minds with it, that we would respond, Father, with faith, trust, that we would respond in ways that bring you glory. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the help of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.